Second Corinthians chapter four. Picking up where we left off in verse seven, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us. But life in you. This week I spoke to a pastor friend of mine who who lives in the south. And we were talking about some of the difficulties, the trials of ministry. We both have sons who have followed in their father's footsteps in planting churches. We talked about how difficult, how hard ministry can be and how hard it was in the beginning and how lonely. And he said, I can't make church planting easy, but we can do something about the loneliness. We can divide the sorrow. We can share the joy. There are times and circumstances when we can help one another. And he asked me, how do you want me to treat your son? And I said, treat him like your own flesh and blood. And he said, well, I'll be honest with you. If he was my flesh and blood, I'd make it a little bit more difficult for him. And I said, you know what? I think I meant what I said. Treat him like he's your flesh and blood. Treat him like you would your own son. You see, the truth is that ministers and ministry, servants require supernatural power, don't they? They require patience and endurance. And Paul has faced continuous trials. He has experienced strain and pressure and fatigue and weakness and criticism and exhaustion. And so he's going to need a supernatural enabling power. But where's that power going to come from? It's not going to come from guns or tanks or nuclear weapons. Bombs don't have the kind of power that Paul needs, nor biceps. But true power, we're going to discover, lies in the most unbelievable place. In paradox. Paradox is one of those words where it looks like on the surface you've got opposites, but when you lay them side by side, you begin to understand how they both can coexist. True power really does lie in paradox. I want you to think about this for just a moment. God becomes flesh. The Lord Jesus takes on a second nature, a human nature, completely human, completely divine. On Sundays, we're marching through the crucifixion. We're headed for the cross. Jesus is being crucified. We realize that Jesus has the ability to call 10,000 angels from heaven to save himself 
and punish his enemies. But he doesn't do it. Paul speaks of power in pots. Of life and death. What kind of crazy talk is that? And now Paul will speak of power that comes from God and life and Jesus in the puzzling presence of paradoxes. Paul will point out that God displays his power in weakness. That when we model the death of Jesus, others see life. When the cross is lifted up, the arrogant are brought down low. And we begin to understand something that the way up is the way down. That in humility and weakness and dependence comes strength and power and provision. What will carry the minister? What will bring the servant the support he or she so desperately needs in the, in the, in the hour of trial, in the, in the presence of difficulty? And we're going to learn something that the presence of God sustains us in verse 7. The power of God strengthens us in verses 7 through 9. The spirit of dying to self carries us in verses 10 through 12. Later we'll see the spirit of faith reinforces us in verse 13. The hope of the resurrection keeps us physically and spiritually alive in verse 14. The needs of others and the glory of God will sustain us in verse 15. The inner man will be renewed day by day and it will create a mechanism of supercharging within us in verse 16. And the hope of glory will come upon us in verses 17 and 18. Remember, earlier in the chapter, Paul wrote about how to handle the scriptures in verses 1 through 7. Now he's going to bring up the issue of handling pain and suffering from verse 8 all the way to verse 18. He will speak about the reality of suffering. And then he will invite the reader to react. Look again in verse 7. The indwelling presence of God sustains us. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. Here's what Paul is doing. He's picturing the believer's body like a clay pot, like a jar of clay into which God has poured the gospel as a treasure. Now, some have suggested that the treasure may refer to our salvation. It may refer to our relationship with Jesus. And I I suspect that all of that is a part of the treasure. We are saved in Christ. We have a real friendship and relationship with God in Christ. But I think that the context is given to us in verse 7, excuse me, in verse 6, which we've already learned. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, I said that the presence of God in the life of the believer is like something cold becoming very hot. It's something dark becoming light. It is the Lord turning on the light of salvation inside of the human heart. And so in this particular sense, he uses the context of the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. As a euphemism, if you will. For for the gospel. You carry within you the story of Jesus. His life, his love, his death. 
And so the word translated earthen is really kind of an interesting word in the original language. It's ostracinos. It's used only here in the Greek New Testament. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, ostracinos, Art and Gingrich say that here it's used as a symbol. It means something fragile. It means something breakable. It means something delicate. You, usually pots fall into two categories, the kind that are hardy and that can work under a whole lot of pressure and the kind that are fragile. I think it's the difference between a vase and a vase. You know, a vase is under $20 and a vase is more than $20. In modern archaeology, they actually use a term taken from this word. If you go out and dig in the dirt with me sometime and we look for pottery fragments from ancient cultures, the fragments are called ostraca. It comes from this ostracinos. It means broken fragments from antiquity. You have to understand something. In the ancient world, merchants would transport oil and wine in massive earthen jars. Philip Hughes, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, writes, In Roman triumphal processions, it was customary for gold and silver to be carried in earthen vessels. Thus, Plutarch describes how the celebration of the Macedonian victory of Amelius Paulus in 167 B.C., there were 3,000 men who marched following the wagons, carrying silver coins in 750 earthen vessels. Each contained four talents of silver that was carried by four men. In the ancient world, a talent of silver was a, was a unit of measure to describe the amount of money that a human being could make in a lifetime. And so... Each vessel borne by four men. It was very possible, he writes, that Paul's intention here is to suggest a picture of the victorious Christ entrusting his riches to poor or earthen vessels of his human followers. Now, what's really interesting to me as I was reading this passage and I was rethinking about what the Bible says. Do you remember in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, we're told that God Fashions human beings from what? Dirt. From the earth. The Bible describes that when God created Adam, he formed him out of dirt and he breathed life into him. God places the treasure of the gospel. Not just in the canister that you would call your body. I'm going to suggest to you that when Paul talks about these earthen vessels or these clay jars, he's talking about the sum and the substance of everything that it means to be human in mind and body and spirit. And so what Paul has made earlier, if you've been following along in our passage in the gospel or in, the, in this epistle of Second Corinthians, Paul has made it clear that the gospel has to be made plain. That the gospel must be preached. And so the gospel is the blazing diamond. It's the treasure. Brilliant and beautiful. And he becomes once again just thrilled at the idea of how could something so valuable, so wonderful, so beautiful be entrusted to people like you? 
and me? And Paul gives the answer. That the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And so God doesn't want men to be occupied with the human instrument, but rather with his own power and with his own grace. And so he he deliberately commits the gospel message to the weak, to what the ancient people would call the uncomely, which means less than beautiful. All the praise and the glory goes to the creator and not to the creature. Henry Jewett, a very famous preacher from times past, wrote, There is something wrong when the vessel robs the treasure of its glory, when the casket attracts more attention than the jewel it bears. It was an old-fashioned way of saying, Really? Does the casket and should the casket bring more attention to the person Who occupies it? He writes, there's a very perverse emphasis when the picture takes second place to the frame. And sometimes you've seen that. You look at the picture and you go, I hate the picture, but I think the frame is great. And so what Paul is basically saying is, the gospel isn't that way. The gospel is the picture. So part of the point that Paul is making is the paradox that since an important treasure is committed in earthen vessels, there is seeming defeat because the idea is if God takes something as wonderful, as beautiful, as powerful as the gospel and he places it inside of you, couldn't things go bad? Might things go wrong? I mean, is it possible... That for whatever reason, the gospel isn't able to get out in the power and the majesty that God intended. And Paul's point is this. On the outside is incomparable weakness. On the inside is unfailing strength. And that's why we can be so weak and so limited and so poor And so problematic on the outside. But the reality is there's something powerful, beautiful, transformative. And it's the power of God that sustains. We are hard pressed on every side. Look what he says. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. By the way, the word translated hard pressed is that Greek word. Flebo. It's T-H-L-I-B-O. Flebo. Um, it's the word that would also mean pressed or pressure. It's sometimes translated trouble. It's often translated in the Bible afflicted. But here in the present passive participle, it means a radical, continual pressure. Squeezing. Paul is basically saying he experiences this hard, steady pressure on every side. Again, think of something that's beautiful and fragile and you put it in a vice. And imagine a vice that is actually able to grip from four different directions. I was watching a guy. He was performing a test on a uh, it's a knife. It's called the battle mistress. It's used. Um, a lot a lot in special operations and and he was t- taking the knife through its test and he put the knife 
in a vice. And then he took a 40-pound sledge, 30-pound sledgehammer and he started hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. And he repeatedly hit it over and over and over again. And after about hitting this knife about 16 times, it failed under the pressure. And you would think, of course, knives weren't meant to put up with that kind of abuse. And sometimes you think that you're not meant to put up with the kind of pressure that squeezes you. Whether the pressure comes from life or the pressure comes from need or sickness or whatever it is that you happen to be dealing with. So Paul's basically writing, we experience hard, steady pressure on every side, yet we remain uncrushed. The word translated crushed is is an interesting compound word. It's only found here in later in chapter six, verse 12. It's it's in the Greek language. There's a prefix. There's a root word. And sometimes there's a suffix. The Greek word, the Greek language is very much like math, where you can add things to intensify the word. So he says we are perplexed, apo. Romeno I, but not exa po renomai. So when he says we are perplexed or we're not utterly at a loss or we're not utterly in despair, in the original language it's a play on words. It would be like if we said in the English language, I'm at a loss, but I haven't lost anything. And so this is sort of what, what Paul is saying here. That, that there is a perplex. And by the way, the word perplex it, it carries with it the idea of a problem where there doesn't seem to be any way out. Have you ever been in a situation where you were perplexed? There was a problem and you thought, I don't see any way out of this problem. I, I, I can't seem to sort through the problem in such a way that I can find a satisfying solution to the problem I'm experiencing. And that's in part what Paul is saying. Does that shock you and surprise you? That the great apostle is faced with problems and difficulties that there doesn't seem to be an immediate answer for? He he writes in verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. The word struck down, kata, balo, menoi, it means struck down in the sense we may be knocked down. Phillips puts it this way, we may be knocked down but we're not knocked out. It's like the old Smash Mouth song. I get knocked down, but I get up again because I'm never going to let me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And see, here, here's the idea. You get knocked down, but you get up. Someone once said that Christianity is different from a pig. A pig may wander into the mud, but the pig will stay in the mud. A Christian might fall into the mud, but they don't remain in the mud. And so Paul says, I get knocked down, but I get up again. That's part of the point that he's making. 
Paul is troubled. He's pressed by critics, by adversaries. He's pummeled by difficulties, but not hemmed or hindered from uttering the message completely. And this becomes the big idea in the passage. And this is the part that I want you to get. That no matter how big the problem, no matter how difficult the despair, no matter how unbelievable the problem or the difficulty may see, Paul basically says, but I find a way to preach the gospel. And that's part of the point. That even though Satan may try to rob him of his opportunity to preach the gospel and present Christ. Here's the idea. In Philippi, Paul is arrested. Paul is beaten. Paul is imprisoned. And he begins to sing songs of joy. And what happens? (laughs) The jailer gets saved. And everybody and everybody in the jailer's household gets saved. Here's the idea. He is beaten. He is arrested. He's incarcerated and God uses it to save this man. In other words, does the difficulty stop the gospel? No. At Corinth, Paul is arrested. Paul is accused before the provincial governor, but the case is dismissed. And Paul is given a great opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul gets arrested. Paul gets convicted again. Paul gets beaten and tortured. And then he has this wonderful opportunity to present the gospel to King Agrippa. And you get knocked down. But you get up again. And God places you in a difficult circumstance or God places you in a position of deprivation or God places you in a hospital or God places you on a mountaintop or God places you in a jungle. God places you here. God places you there. Paul doesn't always see the solution, but the Lord brings Paul to a place where he goes. I I have to believe that God is going to show up in the circumstance that I find myself in. And by the way. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because sometimes we use God's plans or God's will or or, or we'll talk about a vision. We'll talk about a vision for a ministry or we'll talk about a vision of going somewhere or doing something, a vision of what God wants us to do. And I, and I want to ch- ch- change your idea of what a vision is. A vision isn't just the ability or the plan to articulate what it is that you're supposed to do. But I want you to begin to understand that a vision is seeing God in the circumstance that you find yourself in. It's where you begin to ask, where does the Lord fit into the circumstance that I find myself in? How can I love him? How can I trust him? Paul feels the cold steel to his his neck. He feels the hot breath of his enemies. He he feels like he's coming right up to the edge of the cliff. But no matter how close the knife, no matter how hot the breath, no matter how come close he comes to the very edge, he goes, I know, I know, I know that God is is in control. Paul is sometimes seriously smitten, but he continues to offer the message of the gospel. This should be something really, really important to each and every one of you. You would think that Paul would look for smooth sailing, for clear paths, for an unobstructed road. Yet God gives 
wonderful wisdom in difficulty and obstacle and sorrow and sickness in affliction in difficulty in and distress. And I want you to think about what all of those things are designed to do. To break the pot. To crush the pot. That the Lord will sometimes allow your pot to crack. So that people can see what's just underneath the surface of the clay. And some pots are harder than others. Some pots have a deeper glaze. Some have a thicker crust. Some pots don't shatter on impact. Sometimes a pot survives the fall. And depending on how stubborn you are, depending on how difficult you might be, your pot may take not one hit, not two hits, but five hits or six hits. But once the clay begins to shatter, then people all around you can see what's under the the surface. Someone said, give me a, a heart strong to bear my own burdens. Give me a willing heart to bear the burden of others. Give me a believing heart that I might cast my burdens on you, O Lord. Now think about that of what you've just read Pressured, but not distressed, verse 8. Perplexed, but not desperate, verse 8. Persecuted, but not disowned, verse 9. Prostrated, but not defeated, verse 9. Trials usually take two forms. Those that are expected. And those that are unexpected. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Chuck Swindoll writes, crisis crushes and crushing. It often refines and purifies. You may be discouraged today because the crushing has not yet led to surrender. He writes, I've stood beside too many of the dying, ministered to too many of the broken and bruised to believe that crushing is an end in and of itself. Unfortunately, however, it usually takes the brutal blows of affliction to soften and penetrate hard hearts, even though such blows seem unfair. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, reflecting on his unjust time in prison, said, It was only when I lay there rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil Passes not through states and not through classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the human heart. And then he writes in his book, Gulag Archipelago, 1974 Pulitzer Prize. Bless you, prison. Bless you. For having been in my life. What happens to a person who can say, thank you, illness, thank you, prison, thank you, hardship, thank you, difficulty, thank you for revealing what's really, truly 
inside my heart. Thank you for reminding me what's real, what's important, and what's going to last. You see, we live in a culture and a society that will avoid pain at almost any cost. According to the Center for Disease Control, one in every ten Americans takes antidepressants. 11% of every single American over the age of 12 takes antidepressants. Women are two and a half times more likely to take antidepressants. Since the 1980s, the use of antidepressants has increased not 100%, not 200%, not 300%, but 400%. Do you realize that Americans take more drugs than all the rest of the world combined twice? Americans work longer than anyone else. Men average 47 hours per week. We spend, think about this now, we spend eight months of our life opening up junk email. We spend a year of our life Looking for things that we've misplaced. And it gets worse the grayer your head gets. We spend two years of our lives calling people who aren't there. In spite of all of these hardships. In spite of all of this pain. In spite of all of these setbacks. Paul understands that God has a mission and that God has a plan and that the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is going to go forward. But the gospel won't go forward unless you take it forward. Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been placed within you. The story of Jesus, his life and his love has been placed within you. The messenger may be in great danger, Paul is writing, but the message goes forward. And so the spirit of dying daily sustains him. Look what it says. So now think about it. What empowers Paul? He goes, I bear the gospel inside of me. What what? sustains him in hardship and pain. The spirit of dying sustains him. Look what it says in verse 10. Always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now Paul gives the secret of the victorious life. Paul experiences death with Christ and always expresses the life of Christ. And so when Paul says always caring about In the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the servant of the Lord is in a state, a constant state of dying to self, constantly dying. The verb is necrosin. You know that word, necros. We get the word necrominancy. It has something to do with the dead. Necrosin, the dying. It doesn't mean the act of death, but it means the process whereby you die. The idea includes, here's what Paul is basically saying. And he's going to talk about it later in the book of 2 Corinthians. He isn't beaten. He's repeatedly beaten. He's not persecuted. He's repeatedly persecuted. He's not imprisoned. He's repeatedly imprisoned. He suffers pain, hardship, persecution over 
and over and over. It's repeated agony, repeated suffering. But Paul looks beyond the trials to the grandeur and the greatness of the gospel and the person of Jesus because he understands something. I'm being beaten for Jesus. I'm being imprisoned for Jesus. I'm being persecuted for Jesus. I am suffering this setback because God has placed me in a circumstance where another piece of the pot has to fly free. And so another piece comes off and the glory of God is revealed and another piece comes off and the glory of God is revealed and another piece comes off and the glory of God is is revealed. And so here's what he's saying. Jesus was exposed to violence. Jesus was exposed to persecution and eventual execution. And so Paul says. Why does this shock you and surprise you? That I should receive the same treatment. Or that you should receive the same treatment. But again, think about this. Jesus is exposed to violence, persecution, and eventual execution. But does violence and suffering and persecution and execution mean defeat? No, because Jesus is going to come back from the dead. God's purposes are being served. Paul is suggesting that the spirit of dying reflects the life and death of Jesus. So here, the life of Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you that the life of Jesus isn't simply incorporating his life as a man on the earth. As a matter of fact, again, look at verse 10, always carrying about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Watch closely at the end of verse 10, that the life of Jesus all may also may be manifested in our body. What kind of life is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about his earthly life. I think what he's talking about is the exalted life. He's talking about the life that Jesus experiences when he comes back to life. This is the resurrected, the glorified, the exalted Jesus who's going to ascend into heaven and he's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, this is the life that's manifested in our bodies. It's the resurrected life. It's the kind of life that means, guess what? Your sin is really forgiven. Guess what? Your past is really gone. Guess what? The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart and inside of your life is going to give you the resources that you need so that you can be the husband, the wife, the child, the the mother, the father, whoever you happen to be, whatever you happen to be. The power to live the life that God has always intended you to live. Because this is the exalted life. This is the resurrected life. That the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so think about this for just a moment. In verse 11 it says, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal, temporary flesh. He's continuing his train of thought. This great theme. Life comes out of death. And and in just a few chapters, in chapter 6, verse 9, Paul will say, 
as unknown, yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live as chastened and yet not killed. So how in the world does life come out of death? You know the answer. Every animal that you've ever eaten had to die in order to get into your mouth, unless, of course, you eat stuff while it's still alive, which ruins my metaphor. (laughs) But if you are a normal person and you do not eat things that are still alive, but you actually wait till they have, in fact, died and you have cooked it, the animal gives its life. In order to produce life. Some mothers literally give their lives in birthing their babies. But the truth is also in the spiritual realm. You see in the early church. It was the blood of martyrs that literally provided the seed of, uh, for the church. And so people would look at the life of people. They would watch as they were persecuted. As they were afflicted. They would watch and they would see how is it that you can be so calm and confident in such hardship and difficulty. And then they begin to say, my life is hidden in Christ. How is it possible that a person in a, in a, in a hospital room who has just experienced unbelievable pain because of a diagnosis of cancer and they've been fighting what seems to be a losing battle against a deadly disease. But the nurses walk in and the doctors walk in and the family walks in and they see a radiant face completely in love with Jesus. Confident that guess what? Death is not the end. Do you realize that if you really believe with all of your heart Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Some one person said it would be like imagine you are at a funeral for caterpillars. And here's the caterpillars and they're all dressed up in tuxedos. And the caterpillars are carrying a cocoon. They're weeping, they're crying, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're wailing. And here's this beautiful butterfly alive, wondering what all of the sorrow is about. And so here is the idea. That tragedy befalls the saint. Violence interrupts apathy and indifference. Constant exposure to death for Jesus was the normal part of the Christian life. So Jesus, if you will, the life of Jesus is made manifest in the mortal bodies as Paul begins to embrace these hardships and difficulties and criticisms and difficulties. And look what he says in verse 12. So then death is working in us, but life in you. In Ryrie's notes, he writes, Paul's physical sufferings, death is working in us. So when you see that expression, death is working in us, he's talking about the hardship, the difficulty, the trial, the pain. 
are the means by which spiritual life comes to the Corinthians. Here's the idea. Paul, in effect, is telling the Corinthians that his constant exposure to pain, to trial, to persecution, to incarceration and suffering has brought life to the Corinthian church. Because he's gone through all of that stuff. Guess what? He showed up and he gave the gospel. Jim Elliot, in 1956, went to South America to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians. He trains, he prays, he prepares, he does everything that he knows to do in order to be an effective witness. He gets out of the plane and makes contact with the natives and they kill him. I have a friend named George Sanchez who was one of the great evangelists in South America and literally uh, translated for Billy Graham and some some of his South American crusades. He grew up with Nate Saint and he grew up with Jim Elliott and he wept when he found out that Jim was dead and he cried out to God and he said, how could you take the best of us? But he had no idea that in the death of that man, it would prove to be the beginning of a witness that would result in almost everyone in this tribal group coming into a right relationship with, with God and Christ. We're hard-pressed to accept this fact. Tragedy befalls the saint. Violence interrupts our life. Constant exposure to suffering or pain And we create a kind of Christianity that says, I don't want darkness and I don't want pain and I don't want affliction and I don't want any of that. And so I'm going to confess it out of existence and and I'm going to replace my sorrow with joy. And don't get me wrong. We sing the song, replace my sorrow with joy and replace my sickness with health. But we're not talking about some sort of cheesy name it and claim it. What we're talking about is the reality that whether it's suffering, whether it's pain, whether it's persecution, whether it's difficulty, that we can take all of those things and use them as an exciting opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, you're going through this horrible Terrible situation, yeah, but isn't it great that Jesus Christ is Lord? Isn't it great that heaven is a real place? Isn't it great that the worst thing that could ever happen to me, that I could go to hell, that's already over with? You see, once that's taken off the table, once you know you're going to heaven instead of hell, there's a sense of joy that wells up inside of you. I think I've told you guys this, where I'll just walk into a restaurant and I'll be at McDonald's or whatever. And, I, you know, I just all of a sudden begin to think about, I'm going, I'm going to heaven. And the person looks up from the McDonald's, you know, getting ready to say, do you want fries with that? And they go, what are you so happy about? And I say, I just can't believe I'm going to heaven and not hell. Can you believe it? And it becomes this amazing opportunity. Death is working in us. But life in you. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Not only does he have to undergo hardship in order to get to Corinth, but here is part of what he is saying. He is saying it's 
worth it. It's worth it. The gospel has come to Corinth. The life-giving news of redemption has come to Corinth. The saints have trusted Jesus. They've received eternal life. And so you think about the prayers that you've spent for your husband, your wife, your your, your children, the, the, the community in which you live, the radio program that we have, or whatever opportunities we are given, the, the amount of time that you spent praying and preparing so that you could tell other people about Jesus, and then all of a sudden somebody really accepts Christ as their Lord and their Savior. You invite a family member, a friend, a neighbor, someone. You say to them, are you a sinner? And they say yes. And and they say, would you like to experience forgiveness? And they say yes. And you say, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead? And they say yes. And you say, would you like to receive Christ into, into your heart? And they say yes. And now every tear, every hardship, every pain, every inconvenience becomes worth it. The messengers of Christ were in constant danger of death. But the messengers, even though they're in constant pain of death, the message gets through. Chuck Swindoll, back in the olden days, would say, will you take the road to Calvary or will you take the road to Disneyland? Because he was in Orange County and one place led to his church and the other place led to the magic kingdom. And don't get me wrong, I love the magic kingdom. I love to go there. I love the rides. I love to take the children and the grandchildren. But for many Christians, they think Christianity is like Disneyland. It's a place where you go to relax and have fun. But oddly enough, Christianity isn't always a place where you go to relax and have fun. Sometimes there is the painful process of getting rid of the clay. So that the redemptive power of Jesus would be made manifest in your life. The scriptures are full of paradoxes, strength and weakness, much from little, life from death, sorrow that produces rejoicing, poverty that proves riches, having nothing, possessing everything, hearing words that cannot be spoken, seeing that which cannot be seen, knowing the love of Jesus, which surpasses knowledge in Ephesians 3.19. You know, in Acts chapter 26, when Paul spoke before Agrippa, matter of fact, let's just take a tiny moment before we have communion and turn to Acts chapter 26. In verses, Acts chapter 26, I just want to read something really quick to you. In Acts chapter 26, this is Paul's defense before Agrippa. And he says in verse 5, they knew me. From the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain for this hope's sake. King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. 
Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads or the sharp sticks. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. Whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. To make you a minister and a witness. Both of the things which you have seen. And of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people. As well as from the Gentiles. To whom I now send you. To open their eyes. In order to turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And an inheritance among those. Who are sanctified by me in faith. Now I want you to think about. What what we just read. Paul speaks. He says, I stand before you. I'm judged for the hope and the promise by God to our fathers, to the promise of our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God day and night. For this hope, sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. And he says, why should it seem incredible to you that God raises the dead? And then Paul describes himself as a self-righteous Pharisee in verse 5, an opponent of Jesus in verse 9, persecutor of the saints in verse 10, misguided by the priests in verse 10, an inflictor of punishment on God's people in verse 11, a fanatic exceeding mad in his misguided unholy service in verse 11. But a vision of Jesus causes him to see his sinfulness. It's Paul's obedience To the heavenly vision which turns the persecutor into a pleader for souls. And being saved through Christ. He's then sent by Christ to preach the gospel. And in verse 18, watch this. To open their eyes. To turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And an inheritance among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Or sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. Here's what Paul is saying. All of the pain and all of the persecution. I was simply obeying Jesus. Revelation. Open their eyes. Repentance. Turn from darkness to light. Release from the power of Satan to God. Remission. Receive forgiveness. Riches. This unbelievable inheritance. Whenever you see the word gospel in 2 Corinthians, that's what he means. Open their eyes. Turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. Receive forgiveness of sins. And you have this amazing inheritance. What sustains him? What keeps him? What sustains you in that dark moment? What sustains you in that empty moment? What sustains you when you're in that little dark enclosed room and you have nowhere to go? 
Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We can go to Jesus. We can talk to him. We can depend on him. We can receive peace from him. John Newton famously wrote, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You may not be what you want to be. You may not be what you ought to be. You may not be what you hope to be. But by the grace of God, you can be who you are in Christ, knowing that God has placed within you the sacred treasure of the gospel. And that no matter how difficult the hardship, no matter how difficult the road, no matter how painful it is, you have this wonderful privilege. Even though the messenger is afflicted, the message goes forth. We're going to have communion in a moment. What I want you to do is just save the elements, the bread and the cup, so that we all have an opportunity to participate together. So Chet, that's your cue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we think about the trials, we think about the difficulties, we think about the obstacles, what will sustain us? What will keep us? What will be our ever-present help in time of need? And Lord, again, we thank you that in the gospel, we have a wonderful reason to rejoice because we know that the power of God is available. And so, Lord, we pray for revelation. We pray that for the person who's in darkness, that they would open their eyes, that they would turn from their sin, and that they would be released from the power of Satan, and that they would receive forgiveness of sins and a true inheritance And so again, Lord, for that person who's here or who's listening, Lord, I pray that they would find the answer to the questions that I asked earlier. Are you a sinner? And if the answer is yes, do you want forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification. And he's alive and he can change you. Do you believe that? And if the answer is yes, then what would prevent you from receiving Christ right at this very moment? What would prevent you from turning from your sin and turning to the Lord and allowing the darkness to flee and the light to flood your heart and forgiveness and hope to be a part not only of your present but of your eternal future? And so, Lord, I pray for the person who's asked and answered those questions that you would fill their heart with hope and in the knowledge of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.